0: We're going to be reading from Genesis 2, starting in verse 4. The, the bulletin, the text in the bulletin will be behind me. The bulletin has a text only through verse 15. We're actually going to go through verse 17. So follow along with me. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. I'm originally from the state of Colorado, and something that some people in Colorado do is they climb 14ers. Uh, 14ers are 14,000 foot peaks. Uh, there are 52, maybe 56 of them in the state of Colorado. Um, I've had the privilege of hiking like 10 of them, um, and they're, it's re- really a magnificent, magnificent experience. You, like, right as you come to the top of the, the mountain and crest that top, like, it's, it's, uh, you, it's, it's hard to not use the word creation. When you get to the top, where you feel you can see all of creation on a clear day, you can see for dozens and dozens of miles. And it's sometimes like when we read passages like the one we read today about God creating uh, the earth and the heavens and how the the trees and all things are delightful to the eyes. A lot of times my mind goes first to experiences of mine like that, where I, you know, maybe you've heard the the expression before, you know, experiencing God and creation, the beauty of creation. Um, and there's, there's, that's definitely in these passages, uh, and, but I would suggest to you today uh, that, that while that is true, uh, that we do experience God in creation, and the created order is, is, is you know, it's a, it's, a good, it's a good, beautiful thing that reminds us of God. I would, I would suggest that there's more going on in this passage. There's something deeper going on in this origin story. Um, there's actually, in the, this story, in what we've been reading here in Genesis, there are patterns in the create, we see patterns of the created order, patterns of, of the world and our place in it. And I'm going, it's going to take me some time to get there, uh, but the, the thing that I want you all to, to be take home today I've got to do some, some background work to talk about what's going on and describe some, some rivers and trees to you but the point is that, and this is like the, a key pattern, our place in the world that's revealed in this passage is that to be human being fully human is working and keeping the garden before the face of God. Being human is working and keeping the garden before the face of God. And I'll talk about more of what that means for us in a bit. Uh, so the passage that we just read, it starts with a problem in verse 5. The land is undeveloped. It's barren. There's no bush in the field. No plant had yet sprung up. And I would, I would draw your attention, for those of you who have been with us for a little bit, who we've been going through Genesis, um, this, this starting of a problem is interest, interestingly, like, parallels the starting of the problem in Genesis 1. If you remember Genesis 1, verse 2, the problem is that the earth was without form and void, and darkness hovered over the face of the deep. And there's this problem of, and then here in this this passage, the problem is that the land's not ready. It's not developed yet. It's not cultivated. There's kind of like this beginning problem at the start of both of these chapters. And some have taken this these two different problems, and then how God provides solutions to both of them, which he provides solutions through creating the world, filling it with things, and ultimately he provides a solution through creating man and woman in his image to govern, rule over, and cultivate creation. Uh, Some people take these two, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and they say that this this we're reading today is a second creation account, Um, and they say that maybe a later editor just mashed these two stories together, and they don't fit together well at all. Um, and if you've never heard that before, I would pose you, like, there are things to wrestle with in that take on this passage. Uh, How would you square, for instance, that in Genesis 1, the plants are all created on the third day, and man and woman are created on the sixth day, but in this passage, it begins by there not being plants, and then, and, and, but then, then man is created. It, It seems like, it seems like the ordering's almost different. How is the land starting uncultivated? If the the plants would have been made in day three. And there are other, there are other things like this. Um, but what I would suggest to you is that what we see in, in Genesis 2, face-to-face with what we see in Genesis 1, that these are two complementary interlocking accounts of the creation of the world and the commissioning of man and woman. Um, here's a way of, of thinking about it. Genesis 1, 1 begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, the beginning of this, what is called the second account, it begins this way in the second half of verse 4. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It's almost like, just like the order flip there. And I think these two, these two complementary accounts, they, they reflect the differences between those two orderings. The, Genesis 1 is more cosmic. God's you know, speaking light and stars into being. It's a very far away heavenly view. But the story we just read—it's earthy. There's dust, and there's there's rivers, and you know, and there's breathing, and it's it's more of a more of a bottom-up view of the beginning of the world. They're interlocking accounts of the origin of the universe. So, I want to provide some 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 background here for you guys, um, paint this picture for you because this is a very, this is a, a passage that's meant to be. It's me- you're meant to have like a, an Im- images in your head a- after going through this passage. Um, there are three zones of the world according to this passage. Um, there's the wider world all around. Okay, so there. You, in verse 11, it references how one of the rivers that flows out of Eden goes to the land of Havilah, which is where there's gold, there's good ground, and that's. So that apparently, the land of Havilah is not in Eden. There's a wider world all around. So imagine that there's the farthest out sphere. Zooming into a smaller area, there's the land of Eden. And then the third zone, zooming in even farther, it's like almost like imagine big, smaller, and then a little bit smaller, there's a garden. The garden and Eden are not the same thing. The garden is in Eden. Look look with me at verse at verse eight. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he, he had formed. The garden is, is something that's placed in the east of Eden. It's not Eden itself. Why the east? The east is a place of beginnings throughout scripture. The sun rises in the east. So keep that, that image in mind. Wider world, Eden, garden. Okay? Um, over the past few weeks, uh, John Alexander, our lead pastor, has spent a lot of time talking about humans and the role of humans in creation. Uh, so I'm going to... Mix things up and talk about some different major characters uh, that we saw that we can see in this passage. I'm going to talk about some rivers, we talk about a mountain, I'm going to talk about some trees. And eventually, these things will curve around and we'll talk about what it has to do with us. So, mountains, rivers, trees. Mountains, really one mountain. Now, if if you're listening closely, you're like, mountain? I didn't see any mountain in this passage, and if you look again, you're like mm, the word "mountain" is not there. Uh, look at look with me. It's it's subtle. Look at with me at verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden. Remember the zones. Like there's as there's a river flowing out of Eden into the garden, and there divided and became four rivers. Uh, how do rivers flow? They flow downhill, which suggests that the river is coming down off of a mountain, like. In, when I, I'm from Colorado, like I said at the beginning, when there's been a lot of snow over the winter uh, in, the, in the mountains down in Denver, we have really, like, big rivers in the spring and the summer. The, the water comes downhill from the mountains. So there's a mountain here, and the, the, the mountain flows out of Eden and into the garden. So the garden is, it's either close to the top of that mountain or is right at the base of that mountain. It is right by... The mountain is where the garden is, because the river is flowing down off, off of the mountain into the garden. Throughout scripture, mountains are places of encounter with God. Um, I, I won't go into giving many more examples, uh, but it, this is all just to say the fact that it's in the, at the base of a mountain. It's a, the garden is a holy place. It's not just like a random piece of land. It's not just like something for the man to be a, to farm. It's holy ground. It's a, it's a temple of sorts. John talked about that at length this last week. Um, another clue we can see for that is in verse 15. Uh, God places the man in the garden to work it and keep it. Now, we hear that, and we, and we think, like, oh, he's, he's called to farm it. It's his work. And it does include that. But actually, those two words together, work it and keep it, can also mean to serve and to guard. And those two words together, like, those are the commissioning of certain priests, in the Old Testament, who are in charge of guarding the holiness of the temple, the Levites. So man is put in this garden under this holy mountain, not just as a farmer, that would include that, but also as a priest to guard it and serve it. So the mountains. There are rivers, and these ones, you know, I'm not tricking you with these. Those, you saw where those were. Uh, there we get four of them there's the 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 Pishon, which goes to Havilah. There's the Gihon. Then the, there's the Tigris and Euphrates. Uh, two of these rivers are still we know where they are. They're still flowing today. The Tigris and the Euphrates um, in modern day, in, in Mesopotamia. Um, the I want to give, give you a sense of like what the the purpose of these rivers in this creation account. Uh, so sometimes rivers have like proper names. Rivers have proper names. Um, Your and it just it's just the name. So the uh, in Philadelphia, there's the Schuylkill River, uh, which is a very funny sounding name if you've just been to Philadelphia for the first name. Schuylkill, Schuylkill, Schuylkill. Say it a few times fast. Uh, Schuylkill in Finnish means hidden, hidden valley. Um, so the Finnish, the Finnish who were exploring this region in the early 1600s, they crossed over a, hi- a big hill where currently, where the, the, the Philadelphia, um, where the art museum is currently at, they crossed over that hill and they saw this valley and whoa, there was a river. And the name, and it's a Schuylkill River. It comes from Finnish, uh, like a river that's in a hidden valley. Now, when we say Schuylkill all the time, we don't think about that. Um, and I think that's, that's all fine and appropriate. My name's Stephen, which comes from the, me- the word for crown. I don't think about crowns whenever I think of my name. Uh, but sometimes you can, when you can look, there's, there's themes as you look at what some of these proper names mean. And the names of these rivers... The first one, and I think you get a sense for what, what, what's, what, what's going on here. The first one means overflowing. The Gihon, the second one, means bursting forth. The Tigris means rapid. And the Euphrates means fruitfulness. You get this sense of just blessing and goodness going out into the world. The mountain, the garden, is at the center of the world. And the rivers, and them being four is not a coincidence either. You've ever heard the expression, the four corners of the world? The rivers are going out into the four corners of the world, bringing the blessings of the mountain, of the garden, out to the whole world. Fruitfulness. Trees. We get two trees in this passage, and they're both really, really important. Uh, the first is the tree of life. Verse 9, that we've learned that the, the tree of life is in the midst of the garden which is a weird way that we would never talk today. It's just saying that the, it was in the middle of the garden. The tree in the, so this garden under this mountain that's at the center of the world, in the center of that garden is the tree of life. And trees are, and, if, and I, I've, one time I was, when I was with my, uh, this is before we were married, but my wife and I, we were driving through Northern California, and I saw redwoods for just like a few seconds. If any of you have seen redwood trees, it was one of the few times like I've ever been driving, and I felt the need to like do this. Like try as hard as like crane as hard as I could to look up into the sky. Redwoods are like a particularly strong example of this, but throughout human history, throughout human history trees have kind of been viewed as like this, this like ladder, this meeting point between the heavens and the earth. And the redwoods are, like I said, a particular example. But the tree of life is that, is, is that quite literally, quite especially. It's a place from which God's blessing comes down to the world, his presence, his, his life. Um, ancient commentators on this passage always found the tree of life to be the, the fruit of immortality. There's a reason why many cultures worship under trees. Many religions worship under trees. And God's first command to the man is to eat from this tree and the other good trees. To enjoy, to, to enjoy the tree and know him and know his presence. The second tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, I was recreating this, this the story in this chapter with lots of, of like big hand motions for my son a few nights ago when I was putting him to bed. He's three years old, and uh, my three-year-old son asked a question uh, that I think is worth wrestling with ourselves. He asked, he's like, "Why did God make a tree that people couldn't eat from?" And for those of you here who are like me, you know, want to be Bible thumpers, like, why? What would your answer be to that question to a three-year-old? Why do you think God set the world up in such a way that this is here from the beginning? And if you're here and you're, maybe you're, you're not sure what you, you think about Christianity, you're investigating it, uh, this question could be the source of many frustrations. What kind of arbitrary killjoy God would create a world where he immediately begins with a thou shalt not? Why would he do that? And also, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's good for us to know good, the difference between good and evil, right? Is God trying to keep people dumb? It's kind of baffling. My son had a really good question. Throughout this passage, we can see signs that human, that human beings are in their infancy, they're not fully developed yet. There are hints that there are paths for them to develop. You know, just as the rivers flow out into the world, there's kind of this, this assumption that human beings will go out from the garden and out go out and cultivate the world. They'll go to places like Havilah in verse 11 and mine the gold and work the ground. But they, in order for them to get there, they're going to need to develop in the way that God has prepared for them. And in order for man to develop... He must walk with God and trust God, and he must obey his commandments, and he must know that he lives before the face of God. And that's why God begins with a commandment, with a thou shalt not. The man must know that he's a law receiver, that he's a man who is a creature of the dust, and that he's not the lawmaker. And We'll see this sadly in the next chapter, but man stretching his hand to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the man saying, I'm going to do things my way. I am the author of good and evil. I am a law unto myself. I want to tell a quick story to try and flesh this out a bit about um, the path to human maturity, the path to freedom uh, that we can see from there being this command. um, I told this story to the elementary kids last week, and they were really disappointed uh, because it isn't, a, it isn't a real story. So, since you all are grown-ups, I hope you all will bear with a fictional account. Um, the, this is uh, it's Jean Valjean is uh, the main character in Les Miserables. Uh, he's uh, maybe some of you have seen the musical. Maybe a few really intrepid people here have read the book, abridged or unabridged. Um, Victor Hugo, it's massive. Uh, but the beginning, Jean Valjean, he's, he's really the main character in the story. Uh, his the origin for him is he starts off as a, he's a, a thief. He's arrested and he serves his prison sentence on a slave ship, uh, grueling, dehumanizing work for a number of years. Um, he's just referred to as prisoner two four six zero one, and he's released. Um, and after being released, he has nothing uh, to to no two no two pennies to rub together. And he uh, he's invited in by a priest to stay in the church, and the priest feeds him on like you know just is as hospitable as one can imagine to this, this you know, ex-con. And uh, the priest feeds him on silver platters like a fine meal and has a, gives him wine and fine silver goblets. And Jean Valjean waits for everyone else in the church, including the priest, to fall asleep. And after they've fallen asleep, he grabs a sack and he takes as much silver as he can find. And he, steal, he, he steals it and he runs off to try and start a new life. With the silver that he's stolen. And a few hours later, he gets caught by the, the, the police officers, the, the magistrate, and he's brought back to, and he tells, he tells them on the way back, he's like, the, the priest said I could have this. He gave them to me, which is like, you know, sounds like something a, 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 a toddler would say to try and cover what he's done. And the, they, bring him, they bring him before the priest, and they're like, this guy says that you gave these things to him. And uh, the priest uh, looks at these officers, and he's like, "Thank you so much for doing your duty and bringing him here." He's speaking the truth. I did give him these things. And in fact, I wish he wouldn't have left so quickly. Um, and the, the priest turns around and he grabs two uh, candle candle holders, and he's like, "My beloved guest, I, why did you leave before taking the best?" the best that we have to offer, the finest silver, these candle holders. Um, And it's just a crazy story. Uh, And the officers go away, and John Valjean is just like broken by the generosity, by the grace of this priest. And the priest uh, looks at him, and he gives him a command. The priest says, you must use this precious silver to become an honest man. And he does, over the course of the story, Jean Valjean, his, his, that's like the turning point of his life. He ends up becoming like this great man, a magnanimous man. Um, but in order, uh, he becomes a mayor, like in order for Jean Valjean to become the great man, to mature into the, the, the mayor, the king, he first had to know that he was a servant, that he owed someone something, uh, that he was a creature of the dust, that he was under authority. Under God's authority. And so it is with the first man that he has to know that he's a creature of the dust before he can be a king. And that's the path and know that he has to walk with God. It's woven into creation that we are most free, most great, most loving, most human when we follow the commands of God. Which is why Jesus Christ was the most human human who ever lived. Jesus came as a servant. Jesus served and guarded holy places. Uh, When Jesus flipped over the tables in the temple, that was him doing what Adam, what the first man was commanded to do here. You know, the holy mountain, the temple mount, God was, or Jesus was keeping it holy and clean. Jesus followed the will of his father. And this also means if Jesus was the most human human in human history, it means that Jesus' cross which we were just singing praises about a few minutes ago, Jesus' cross was the most human moment in human history. The most human human doing the most, at the most human moment in human history was the cross of Jesus. And not in the way you think. Sometimes we say that like, it was the, the cross was the most human moment, we think it's because humans, like the, it was a very human thing for him to be unjustly murdered. Because humans are, full, are, are sinful and flawed. And while that's true, Sin is not inherent to humanity. More inherent to humanity is, is Jesus serving and keeping the creation under the living face-to-face with the Father, living before the Father. That's more human, far more human. Actually, sin is anti-human. The cross is a new garden. It's a new, there's a new mountain, there's a new tree, there's a new river. The new mountain. Jesus has to ascend. He has to carry a cross up a hill. The mountain of Golgotha, right outside the city of Jerusalem. There's a new tree. Jesus was killed on a tree. Jesus' cross is the new tree of life, through which God's blessing comes to the world. There's a new river. After Jesus had died, had given up his life, Um, He, uh, according to the Gospel of John, we read that a soldier, um, to make sure he was dead, uh, uh, rammed a a spear into his side, took it out, and out of his side came blood and water. That's the new river. That's the new river of Jesus' garden. Uh, His blood is for the healing of the nations. His blood goes to the four corners of the world so that we can be cleansed, so that we can be healed, so that we can be renewed. And this world that we read in Genesis 2 needs water because the land is uncultivated. It's barren. We need the new river of Jesus' blood even more. And We access this new mountain, this new tree, this new river through faith in Jesus Christ. Through his body, through union with him, we come to a new garden. And it's like so many times when talking about the Garden of Eden, it seems like a place we're supposed to go back to. Um, Our garden's better than this garden, than the garden of Genesis 2, the garden that Jesus has invited us to. Um, Even though the path to our garden is one through death, life filled with much suffering, um, we follow our Savior in that. And even though it seems as much plainer, it's far more glorious. So if you want to be the most truly human, have faith in the one who was the truest human of all how do we live like this is true um in christ we work and keep we serve or we serve and guard our corner of creation with our face towards god that's what it means to be most fully human put another way we tend to our gardens lowercase g lowercase g gardens we tend to our gardens following the great capital g gardener jesus christ how does this work out um I would invite you to consider your house, like the actual place where you live, your home. Uh, whether you live alone, maybe you live with little kids like me, wife wife and kids, spouse and kids. Maybe you live, uh, maybe you're, live with your, your, your spouse and you're an empty nester. Your kids have long left the house, uh, or maybe you've never had kids. Uh, maybe you live with roommates. I think your, your house is a garden. It's a garden of sorts. Consider these questions. What's, what's the mountain in your house? Where is, the, is there a, a place or a time, think of it really in terms of space and time, that is holy in your house? Is there a, a space in your house where you come before the presence of God? Maybe thinking about it negatively is even more helpful in terms of our house being like a, a garden under a mountain. Are there unholy things that happen in your house? That you ought to guard against. Perhaps the most human thing you could do this week is guarding your house against such unholiness. That could be the most human thing you do this week. What's the tree of life in your house? If you looked at the spaces of your houses where you sit, where you gather, where you spend time, where's the place where the life of God meets your daily existence? For many of us, I would imagine this would be the, the place where we eat. After all, God does invite the, the man to eat from the fruit of the tree. Do your meals feel like a meeting point between heaven and earth, giving gratitude to God? Or do they feel like just like a utilitarian feeding trough? Are your meals characterized by gratitude to God? Here's another way to think about tree of life in our homes. Are the words that are exchanged between people in your house, do they restore life or do they transmit death? Does your house have rivers? Think about it this way Do the blessings that God has given your house flow out to the four corners of your block? Do the blessings that God has given your house flow out to your brothers and sisters in the faith, in this room? Maybe perhaps especially the people who you like the least. Or is your house like the beginning of this passage, barren and uncultivated? If you hear these questions and you feel like, I'm a failure, I don't have, like these things don't describe my house at all. And and as I was just saying, saying utilitarian feeding trough, I was reminded of how eating often goes in my own house. Um, If you feel a bit of that, that's good. Only Christ tends the perfect garden. And if your gardens are going to carry the riches of the Garden of Eden, the riches of the Garden of Golgotha, you will have to come back to Christ again and again and again. For those of you who are here and who have faith, even the smallest mustard seed size faith, I'm going to invite you to come to this table here in a minute. At this table, we receive the benefits of Christ's body and blood. Remember the the new river from Jesus' side? We receive the benefits of that river. We drink from that river. At this table, if you want to be more human, as we see in this passage, if you want your garden to have more of the riches of Eden, hear these words, this invitation from Isaiah 55, as we approach this table. God's words for you. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. All who are thirsty, come to this table and be renewed as you go to tend your own garden before the face of God.